In the summer of 2020, black, brown, and white protesters poured onto the streets in cities and towns across the U.S. and around the world to protest the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. The message of Black Lives Matter, which began as a social media hashtag after the 2012 vigilante killing of teenager Trayvon Martin, echoed in the streets, the halls of power, and in corporate boardrooms. For a brief period of time, much of the country seemed at least open to the idea of criminal justice reform, even if they couldn't quite get behind the idea of defunding the police. But that moment of solidarity was fleeting, and just two years and many more lives lost at the hands of police later. Police budgets are on the rise, and not much has structurally changed. What can and should be done to solve these problems, and are we even looking in the right place for the answers? Today's guest, Professor Cedric Johnson, and I will tackle these questions. So let's get started in the Politics Classroom, recorded on September 27th, You're listening to The Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, a clinical associate professor of political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. You can also learn about me, my guests, and the podcast at thepoliticsclassroom.org. My guest in the classroom today is Professor Cedric Johnson. Professor Johnson is a professor of Black Studies and Political Science at UIC. He received his bachelor's degree in political science from Southern University, a master's degree in black studies from The Ohio State University, and a master's and PhD in government and politics at the University of Maryland College Park. Before arriving at UIC, Professor Johnson taught at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. He is the author of many articles, book chapters, and essays, as well as several books, including Revolutionaries to Race Leaders, Black Power and the Making of African-American Politics, an edited volume titled The Neoliberal Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism, and the Remaking of New Orleans, and his most recent book, The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, Debating Left Politics and Black Lives Matter. Professor Johnson is spending this academic year at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California, to study and teach about the public costs associated with Los Angeles hosting its third Olympic Summer Games in 2028. Professor Cedric Johnson, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'd like to ask all of my guests what led them to an academic career in their field of study. So what led to your interest in political science and Black politics specifically, and why did you decide to become a professor? You know, I, I think the simple answer would be where I grew up. I grew up in a town called Opelousas, Louisiana. Okay. And it's the third oldest settlement in the state behind uh, New Orleans and Natchitoches. You know, so it's one of the original French settlements. Okay. And when I grew up there in the 1970s and 80s, it was like a really, just a magical place in so many ways, right? It was majority black. It was still governed by whites. 
And I was able to, to take part in the transformation of that parish from being white governed for the most part to becoming uh, black controlled. Um, in part, the mayor's office, the chief of police, city council becomes majority black. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that activism came out of the church I grew up in, which was um, Holy Ghost Catholic Church, which at the time was the largest black Catholic congregation in the country. Mm-hmm. And we had a pastor named uh, Albert McKnight, who had been responsible for organizing a number of cooperatives throughout the South, but especially in South Louisiana. And he was like, he was my mentor as a kid, right? He was somebody who talked to me about politics and talked to all of us, you know, all of the young people in that community. That was really the beginnings of it, right? So when when I attended Southern University, arrived there in 1989, I was already uh, an activist of sorts, right? I was already taking part in organizing against the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I was beginning to protest against the uh, the Persian Gulf War, you know, back then, okay. you know, walking around unsuccessfully in a way, trying to get other students to to uh, oppose the war. And it was it was one of those experiences, you know, being at Southern University where you've got a diversity of students, right? I mean, it's a black university, but you've got students from all walks of life. You've got students who were admitted into Ivy League schools, but chose to go to a black college. Mm-hmm. You've got students who are just coming out of being incarcerated, right? Mm-hmm. And got their GD in, in prison, right? So okay. you've got a range of people. And back then, most of us were politicized by the music of the times in part, right? It was kind of reflected in political hip hop music at the time, Afrocentric oriented hip hop music. Okay. So a lot of us felt a sense of responsibility to be involved in different struggles and to take part in politics. And it was a great place. I mean, when I look back on it, it didn't really prepare me for graduate school, right? Because the technical things you would need to know to go to grad school weren't really a strong suit, right? It wasn't like we were learning how to use, you know, SPSS (laughs) in that program. But what you did get, right, you you did have like biology teachers who were actively involved in fighting against petrochemical companies, right? You had Mm. professors, like one of my favorites, um, Gary Clark, who actually is a professor at at Dillard University in New Orleans now, who was talking to us about NAFTA and about, you know, other things, you know, that I wasn't really, you know, prepared for, right? (laughs) He was talking talking to me about transnational uh, organizations and the World Bank and and all that sort of stuff back then, you know, to an 18, Mm 19-year-old, but it was helpful. It kind of set me on a particular path. So I was thinking about doing some sort of business-related major because I wanted to be involved in like economic development things in my hometown. And that's what I was thinking as a a, uh, 17-year-old when I got there. But once I took a couple of econ classes, I realized that that type of of training was not what I wanted. I was really interested in questions of power and, you know, um, social movements and what have you. And Southern University's political science department was perfect for that. So let's turn to your recent book, The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, Debating Left Politics and Black Lives Matter. So this is my summary of your argument, and I want you to tell me how close I am. While systemic racism absolutely exists in the United States by assuming that all Black people have the same political interests and downplaying or ignoring the similarities of class-based interests across racial identities, 
High-profile movements like Black Lives Matter are trying to solve problems like police violence and mass incarceration without addressing the roots of these problems, which are neoliberal economic policies that privilege capital at the expense of the working class. How close was that? That's better than I did it. That's actually better than my explanations. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Interview over. You've been listening to the politics classroom. No. (laughs) Okay, good. I was really worried. So no, that's I'm, great. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, so let's kind of dive into pick apart some of those things that I just said. Um, in your book, you talk about black essentialism. Um, so can you explain what black essentialism is and why it is a problematic frame for solving problems of mass incarceration and police violence? Right. So yeah, at times I talk about black essentialism. You know, the tendency to sort of reduce a whole host of different interests that are operating historically to like one or two things, right? Or to assume that there's a tremendous amount of unity among black people with respect to uh, to political interests and, and desires, right? Okay. In a similar vein, I talk about black exceptionalism, right? That people imagine this problem of policing to be something specific that only black people experience, right? And if, if whites experience it, it's also an exception, right? To the general rule that black people are the ones who feel this the most. And on some level, right, it's an experiential thing, right? It's what people are seeing, what they're experiencing in their own context that gives these ideas weight, right? And so if I'm a, if I'm a black person who lives in Chicago, the argument that black people are much more likely to be uh, persecuted or assaulted or murdered by police it's totally true, right? I mean, within a, in, a, in a context of Chicago, just in the last few years, you look at any any given year, and upwards of 70% of those persons killed by police are black. Okay. The same is true when you look at, like, harassment stops, right, where police stop people, you know, run their license plates or you know, run their, their uh, license, you know, driver's license, and then let them go, right? So there's no arrest that's actually made. Over 70% of those persons are also black, right? And so in a city where black people only constitute about one-third of the population mm-hmm. within the city proper, that is a gross, you know, overrepresentation in that, that type of policing. And so it makes total sense, right, to say black lives matter, right? And black people are being unfairly treated by police. When we look at these numbers nationally, right, when you go to other states, the demography totally shifts. Mm-hmm. And in places like Kentucky, you still have a majority white prison population. In other parts of the country, even places where there aren't very many black people, you have higher rates of per capita police killings. And so when we look at this national demography where black people are not the majority of folks killed by police, something else is going on, right? And so what that what that's led me to do you know, following the work of other people, I'm not the first person to make these arguments, is to focus in on the class character of policing. Okay. So that's to say, when we think about the people in Chicago who are routinely stopped, uh, harassed, arrested, tried, incarcerated, surveilled long after they've done their time, when we look at people who experience those processes in Chicago, and when we look at people in places like Kentucky, or Utah, or here in Southern California, we're talking about a similar population, 
from a superficial, you know, racial standpoint, of course, they're different. There's all sorts of different people. Sure. But the common thread is that they tend to be among the most dispossessed segments of the working class, right? They tend to be people who are unemployed, people who are underemployed or are irregular, you know, they face mm-hmm. irregular employment, right? Mm-hmm. They're people who may have to rely upon criminalized forms of work in order to subsist, right? And so when we start from that vantage point, there's a different population we're talking about. It's not all black people. That's the other sure. thing, right? So when we hear Black Lives Matter, the assumption maybe for some people is that every black person, I've heard folks say this, you know, in debates and in social media posts and why does this never happen to white people or, you know, black people have to be worried and vigilant every day about being stopped and killed by cops. That's hyperbolic. That's not true. There are other dangers in the world that are much more, you know, likely than being assaulted by a police officer. But the injustice of it and the longer history of black exclusion and oppression in the country gives these kinds of claims much more weight, right? They seem much more plausible um, because we already have a, a narrative. We already have a discourse for understanding that, right? Coming out of the civil rights movement and out of the longer histories of, of slavery and Jim Crow segregation. But part of what I've been trying to do, not just in this, this uh, Panthers Can't Save Us Now book, but in other, other places... Sure is just to remind us of that class character of policing, right? That policing right now is not about harassing black people. It's not even just racism that's driving it. Racism is a part of how some officers profile, how they pick on certain populations. But maybe even more uh, specifically, we're talking about the management of relative surplus populations, right? Again, people who are unemployed, people who occupy zones that either tend to be dominated by criminalized forms of work, the drug trade, you know, and other other kinds of problems, or zones that oftentimes need to be kept exclusive from middle class, wealthy, tourist-oriented places within cities, right? So there's a way in which police actually guard the boundaries, Mm -hmm. especially in a place like Chicago, guard the boundaries between, you know, what constitutes the safe, valuable part of the city and what are the netherworlds that people have been condemned to. Okay. I think what I'm having trouble reconciling in the argument is the, I mean, it sounds like the intersection of race and class is a large problem in cities like Chicago, et cetera. Mm. And so I guess Can you explain a little bit more your critique of the approach that movements like Black Lives Matter are taking by only focusing on race? Because it sounds like, so one of the things about the Bernie Sanders candidacy that I have heard, and I don't know if this is actually true or not, is that the reason that he didn't appeal to a lot of African-American voters is because he only talked about class. And when you look at different demographics within the same class band that white folks like white working class do better than black working class and other racialized minorities uh, or racialized groups. Sorry. And that there are still, even within class, there are racial disparities. So how is focusing? So is focusing only on race just as problematic as focusing only on class? 
and that you're suggesting we need more of a like an intersectional approach or I guess that that's where I, what I'm trying to struggle through of of what the critique of the Black Lives Matter approach is. So let me let me respond to that last part first and then I'll address some of the specific ones. Okay. You know, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, right, there's a whole host of different positions and and tendencies within Black Lives Matter as a phenomenon, right? And I actually side with some of some of those tendencies, right? So I don't completely agree with defunding the police. I don't completely agree with some abolitionist positions, but I do think that they've opened the door to a different kind of discussion about spending priorities within cities, right? And some of them have called for rerouting funds that might have been spent on like new police training centers, for instance, towards the kinds of youth centers and youth programming that might address the issues of problems we've seen in places like Chicago with young people over the summers, right? You might actually have like some solutions. So I'm on board with that. I'm not not against that. If I have a problem with it, I think it doesn't go far enough. I think that there's a bigger discussion about spending priorities in cities that we could have that doesn't just include police budgets, but it also includes the tremendous amount of money we spend as citizens on subsidizing private sector growth and development, right? And so I think that's a a conversation we can have together, right? It should be Black Lives Matter's demands about police budgets, but also these demands around, you know, spending on creating new neighborhoods, whole cloth uh, out of the public's coffers. So I'm concerned about those things as well. I think that's where we can have more of a combined conversation. As far as the race and class debate, right? This is kind of a thing that's been, it's flared up over the last few years with Sanders and some of the things that have been said online and other places. I think there's a there's a number of things here that I just want to maybe address. The idea that white working class folks fare better. We see a lot of those comparisons, right? A white person with a high school education does better than a black person with uh, a college degree. You'll see those kinds of comparisons made. I think there's an underlying demographic difference that isn't really factored into those those broad, you know, factoids that are presented to us. Okay. Many white people, many more white people live in small towns and in exurbs and in rural areas, right? Sure. Where it's possible to have a high school diploma and to do okay, right? You could become a mechanic and have a fairly good living. It's a low cost of living in some of those places. Okay. You could also, you know, as a person, I think sometimes the not having a college diploma is deceptive too, because if I'm a high school graduate who grew up in a town where my dad is a plumber or my my parents own a car dealership, I'm differently, I'm in a different position than a black person who's had to go to college and who's paying student loans and who lives in a city where it's much more expensive to live, right? So I think there's an apples, oranges comparison that's being made. Okay. In, in some moments, when we, when we use those, those facts about black and white, you know, educational attainment and then differences as far as uh, income and wealth. And I say that as somebody who's lived in small, smaller places, and I know that there's a cost of living of being a black person in Chicago that's so much different from being a black person in my hometown, you know, where sure. I grew up or in Baton Rouge or Columbus or any other place I've been. So that's something to think about. The other thing about Sanders, right, this is kind of deceptive. Black people for a long time have been the most likely 
you know, you look at one public opinion poll after another, they're the most likely to support single-payer health care. They're the most likely to support much more redistributive public policies. They're much more liberal compared to, to many whites. I think the problem with Sanders, and I think there's two problems. One is that his defeats in South Carolina provided uh, a place where people could extrapolate, you know, make broad claims about who Sanders was mm -hmm. and what his problems were. And they could extrapolate from the South Carolina example to the nation in ways that may not have been fair to him. I mean, he got, he got, he got beat badly in, in South Carolina, right? Twice. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of that had to do with the mechanics on the ground in South Carolina and the way that campaigns function, you know, at that level, right? Like who people support isn't always, especially in a place like South Carolina, that's, that's majority Republican. And it's not a part of the national electoral calculus for Democrats when it comes to a presidential election. Sure. Right? They're not right. going to win South Carolina. Right. right. But in that primary campaign, you've got black people who are hedging their bets on who they think can win at the national level. Right. And you've got, of course, older black demography, people who, you know, you're living in a state like South Carolina. They just took the damn Confederate flag from the state grounds, yeah. you know, the state house grounds in, in recent memory, right? right? And so for them, it's like socialism is not a possibility, right? Uh, if it is, it's off in the distance. Who can we support right now who's actually has a chance of getting elected? And in the last contest, who can actually beat Donald Trump? And so I think yeah. that's that was the overarching thing that was animating South Carolina voters. Um, and to his credit, I mean, I think if, if my memory serves me correct, I think Sanders doubled his support in South Carolina the last time. It still was not enough, sure. right, to come close. And you also had... You also had a much more crowded field this time around sure. than, than the last yeah. uh, contest. But I think um, back to this initial question about race and class, you know, I think in my mind, right, you know, there are concepts of a different order to use uh, Barbara Fields, you know, uh, language, the historian Barbara Fields. You know, race is ideological in ways that, that class is not, right? And when we talk about race in the ways that we're here now in the moment of, of Black Lives Matter, again, there's a tendency to flatten the actual politics within the Black population where, you know, you've got people who are not budging on their support for police, right? Black support for police is not what Black Lives Matter activists are saying. It's, it's very right. different. It's very complex, right? I mean, mm -hmm. people don't want to see injustice, they don't want to see somebody like George Floyd choked to death in the way that he was. But that doesn't mean that they're, they don't want police, right? They actually want police to do their jobs. And so my concern with some of the, the Black Lives Matter uh, rhetoric is that it doesn't necessarily take into account the broader and more complex perspectives and interests that are animating Black people nationally, right? Okay. But it also, again, it misses it misses the class character, right? So think about it like this. George Floyd, unemployed at the time in which he was he was killed. He was also somebody who came to Minneapolis as part of a program for people who were in recovery. So he mm -hmm. was seeking a second start, you know, uh, in life. 
allegedly he tried to pass a counterfeit bill, you know, to buy cigarettes at that store. We don't know for sure. Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, a whole host of other people who've been, you know, in these conflicts with police. They're folks who had been harassed before. They're people who had had brushes with the law before in their cases uh, for like low-level drug offenses, right? Walter Scott, who was shot in the back in North Carolina, in North Charleston, uh, not in South Carolina, North, North Charleston, he had a warrant out for not you know, failure to pay child support, right? Which is a is an indicator of economic hardship, sure. right? In most cases. Yeah. People like, you know, Eric Garner, what was he doing? Selling, you know, untaxed cigarettes in front of a convenience store. So you've got in one case after another, and of course there's exceptions, right? Tamir Rice was a kid, yeah. right? He shouldn't have been killed by police in the way he was, right? But but in many of these cases, they tend to be people who are not unfamiliar with police harassment. Um, They're not unfamiliar with economic hardship. And so in my mind, I think we really should, we should really, if we want to solve this problem, right, there's a, there's a bigger problem that's beckoning to be answered, which is how do we address the levels of inequality that exists in the society, right? Uh, When we see people in a scuffle with the police, that's the, that's the, that's one moment in a much longer narrative of hardship that should, should have been addressed and we should still address. So I just think it is it is intersectional, right? I don't I don't doubt, and in any of my work, you'll never see me doubt that there's not racial discrimination, you know. Uh, and I've had brushes with the law before. My kids have, you know. I just don't write about those things. But I'm not I'm not somebody who thinks that racism doesn't exist or that it's not important. I just think it's not the fundamental motor of what's happening right here, right? I mean, black people with college diplomas are highly unlikely to face incarceration, right? I mean, it happens, yeah. of course, there's, there's exceptions, but their their likelihood of facing incarceration is greatly reduced by moving up in terms of educational attainment and also class position. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in your book that really interested me was the conversation about the stories that we talk about in terms of how policing got started in this country as coming out of the slave patrols to capture escaped enslaved folks. And you bring up that people don't really ever talk about the ways that police were used to suppress union agitation in northern cities. Mm, right. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how we should balance these competing and or complementary narratives about the kind of the roots of modern policing in America? Yes. Yeah, so I think the discussion of slave patrols, the arguments about the 13th Amendment, you know, that there's this exception clause right. about you can be forced to labor if you've been convicted of a crime. The discussions about the convict leasing program in the South, or different Southern states, 
you know, all those things are evoked because for contemporary audiences, they help to reinforce this idea that the fundamental problem here is one of an unresolved racism within American culture, within American institutions. And so evoking those instances really kind of is, is clear, right? Of course, if we can find a slave patrol in antebellum America where people had something that looks like a badge, right? You know, the first instance of a what looks like a police badge, then this justifies or it supports this broader narrative of unmitigated, unrelenting anti-Black racism, right? The problem with that is that there are other institutions that are being developed at the very same time that slave patrols are, are in motion, right? And we know that the forerunners of police departments, right, night watchmen, in places like Boston and other cities along the Eastern Seaboard, were there before the American Revolution, right? Small groups, it's informal. As cities become much more urban and industrialized in the 19th century, you also see the establishment of London-style departments, right, in places like New York and elsewhere in New Orleans. And so these things are happening at the same time. I think the common thread, and this goes back to what I'm saying about the class character, what, why, why do police exist, right? They exist to support um, the protection of private property and to secure the conditions for capital accumulation. That's my view of why police exist and other people who said the same thing. And so if we say that, then the slave patrols and the use of police to crush labor uprisings are one and the same, right? They're essentially there to make sure that whether it's in the antebellum South, where you have, you know, the fear of Black insurrection or the fear of Black runaways, Mm -hmm. or in, in, you know, industrial America, you know, uh, the Northern, you know, manufacturing, uh, early manufacturing uh, locations, you're still concerned about how do we control this laboring population, and keep them subordinate to the interests of capital, right? Whether that's plantation-based capital or northern-based manufacturing. And so that's my way of thinking about it, that it's not, they don't have to be antagonistic, but there is a problem when people exclude one, you know, to talk about the other, right? So that would be my quick answer to to this. But yeah, I think those are those are connected, right? The night watch patrols, the, the uh, slave patrols, and certainly the formation of departments in in major cities in the U.S. in the 19th century. Okay. So, actually, I want to go back a minute, because you talked about policing the surplus population. Mm-hmm. Can you expand on, on what you mean by that? Because, I mean... It sounds mean. It sounds really mean. <laughs> <laughs> the surplus, yeah. So, yeah, they're not surplus. You know, I, 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 sometimes I cringe when I use the term because <laughs> it does it does go back to Thomas Malthus, right? <laughs> it does yes. sound like that. Right. They're not surplus humanity, right? They're surplus when it comes to the expectations or needs of capital within a particular historical moment, okay. right? And so in our society, at this moment where We've reached certain levels of technological development in certain industries where there were paths towards gainful employment before that are no longer there, right? Mm -hmm. And you and I can, you know, without divulging our age to your audience, (laughs) talk about the things that we've seen disappear, right? Like I remember as a kid going to um, the gas station with my 
with my parents and you'd have a whole bunch of guys come out and one would pump the gas and one would like clean your windows mm-hmm. or whatever else. And, yep. you know, it's sort of that kind of full service gas station model. I remember going to um, banks as a kid and you sit there and you get a lollipop and all this other stuff and, you know, you meet the tellers. Right. Now you go into a bank, it's a ghost town, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Nobody goes into a bank unless you're trying to set up an account and you don't even have to do that anymore, right? You can set it up online. Right. Or rob it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yes, you're, you are absolutely right. It is not the way it used to be. Yeah, none of our students go into a bank. Right. And so all sorts of things have become automated, even service level jobs, sure. right? And you and I both know that even our jobs, right, the things that we thought were beyond, you know, automation <laughs> are now are now being, you know, encroached upon sure. as some universities are engaging more and more in online ed, this requiring faculty to create modules and, you know, online courses that can then be put on autopilot. Mm-hmm. And there's, a, you know, at least one horrific case of uh, a faculty member's Courses being used even after he's deceased. Ouch. Right? Yeah. You know, so there's that sort of stuff. So when we talk about surplus population, we're talking about the relative needs of capital within a given historical moment and what that means for the employment prospects of, you know, working class people, right? And so people were writing about this, you know, as far as black populations, they're writing about it in, in the 1960s, right? I mean, people like, James Boggs, but also James Baldwin, the great, uh, you know, literati, Bayard Rustin, the civil rights activist, mm-hmm. white activists like the democratic socialist Michael Harrington. They're all talking about automation back then. And for people like Boggs, they're thinking about it within the context of the factory. Right. You know? and, mm-hmm. and in his case, he worked for Chrysler. He worked in one of the big Chrysler plants okay. in Detroit. And he remarked in a book that came out in 1963 that not only was he witnessing the impact of automation on union activity within his shop, he was like, you know, now we're really, the real divide now is not between ethnicities as it used to be. He was like, the real divide is between those of us who have some seniority and who are going to really benefit from contracts and those of us who are newcomers who may never really, you know, find that kind of security Mm -hmm. in our future, right? And he was also worried about those black men who he saw in his neighborhoods, you know, in other parts of Detroit, who he feared would never, you know, unlike him as like an Alabama migrant who was able to, you know, hobo his way all the way to, to Detroit on, on freight trains and find a job in the factory. He's like, these other guys are never going to find a job, right? They're now idle on street corners and in pool halls, and they'll never be a part of the same kind of, you know, manufacturing system. So, when I use this, when I use the term surplus population, it's with that in mind. Like, what are the the requirements, labor requirements of capital at this particular moment? Can it absorb people in the ways that it did in previous moments? And so, it's not it's not that the people are surplus; it's that they're surplus towards you know the needs of capital, right? The unnecessary, the obsolete. So that's that's the that's the main claim. I, for one, I'm inspired by the old works. Progress Administration, you know, and Civilian Conservation Corps and some of those other Depression-era uh, projects that we've forgotten about in a, in a large sense, right? I mean, those those projects were created out of economic necessity. Mm-hmm. 
But they've had such far-reaching impacts on the country that I think we need to revisit, right? I mean, when I was traveling from Chicago to here, my sister and I stopped at the Petrified Forest National Park in uh, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And some of that infrastructure, right? We went to like this really nice building that was part of the, the park complex had been built by, you know, civilian conservation corps workers. And I've visited all sorts of, you know, CCC projects yeah. around the country that are still around. I mean, there's a way that, that some of that labor that we're talking about that might be obsolete could be harnessed in that way, yeah. right? I mean, give people projects to work on that not only add meaning to their lives, but could also put money in their pockets, right? And and be a different kind of way of approaching how we think of, you know, of labor, right? Mm -hmm. Does it always have to be used in such an exploitative way? Right. I mean, another great dimension of the um, Works Progress Administration was that they, they used, you know, redundant teachers to do literacy classes, right? They used mm. people's skills and, and training in other kinds of ways that were for the broader public good. And so, you know, those kinds of things seem so far away, but yeah. people want to do that, right? I mean, people yeah. already volunteer to do literacy. People already sure. volunteer to do certain kinds of things. So why not open up uh, some other space where that could happen, you know, or things like this last example I'll give you, like the, the recording of oral histories yeah. back to the 1930s. Yeah. People who had been enslaved, right? I mean, had, had somebody not said, this would be a way to spend the public's money. Let's go and find, you know, <laughs> yeah. all of these older black people who in the 80s, and, you know, and let's, let's, let's talk to them about what it was like. Yeah. Had somebody not taken that step, we wouldn't have those recordings, you know, and those, those transcripts of, you know, a world that none of us will ever experience directly, but we have this treasure of a, a record, you know, right. and we can do similar things now. I mean, there are all sorts of people who I've known in my life who have tremendous stories to tell about life in different parts of the country. Sure. You know, that could also be a way to marshal our collective resources and, and labors. Yeah. Since you brought up the Depression, I would like to bring up the New Deal. And... Mm -hmm. You know, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the narrative that the New Deal benefited white workers to a much greater degree than black and other racialized workers. Same thing with the GI Bill after World War II, that this, you know, was mm -hmm. really for white people and that black people were excluded from this. Mm -hmm. And you argue that those narratives are deceiving. <laughs> So right. not only can you set the record straight about those, but also why are these myths so, I don't want to say pervasive, but, you know, why why do they linger so much if the statistics don't bear them out? I mean, I think it goes back to what we said earlier in terms of um, why people reach for the slave patrols yeah. and convict leasing as a way to understand contemporary policing, right? Our com contemporary incarceration and, and what have you. Um, because it, it, it fits their narrative, right? It fits the idea that this is all about race. This is about an unresolved and, again, unrelenting problem of racism within American life. And it's it scores good points, right? If you're on social media or you're in some sort of debate with people, to point to the history of injustice. And there's much to point to in the U.S. You know, right. record as far as racial injustice. 
So I think calling on, you know, calling a new deal racist or saying that it benefited whites, it does so much damage, not only to the history of the new deal, right, and the facts of it, but it also sets up the situation where somehow we believe that the problems that happened during the new deal will still be our problems, right? That because they may have failed to be as progressive as possible in the 1930s, that now a hundred years later, almost, we should we're going to fail in the same way. So I think there's a self-defeatist part of it. You know, when I hear people make those claims, I think we're better than that. I think we can do things in different ways now. Um, But the New Deal did originate within a Jim Crow context. But even with that said, the honest reading of the New Deal is that in many ways it sets the stage for the post-war civil rights movement um, and for that matter, second-wave feminism, right? That's the argument I would make is that the emergency of the Depression forces a level of experimentation within the Works Progress Administration, within the Civilian Conservation Corps, within all sorts of agrarian and cooperative experiments that are hatched across the country, you know, with the support of the federal government and local agencies as well. It really put it really sets us on a path where we're having to to think about how to address these issues. And for the most part, there's some pretty strong incorporation that, that happens, right? I mean, black people are employed en masse in the Works Progress Administration. Okay. In the hundreds of thousands, right? Um, black people are employed en masse. And in proportion to, there's actually regulation that, that there's at least 10% of the Civilian Conservation Corps is constituted by, by black men, right? And so... There's a way in which even even the depths of Jim Crow, they're trying to figure out how to deal with the questions of inequality. The other thing about it, and this is the thing that always gets me, is if we say that the New Deal was so racist, why did black people change their party affiliation, again, en masse during this period towards the Democratic Party? If it was such a disaster... You know, it's like we don't even, we don't even, in our rush to try to make the racial justice argument in the present, we forget the, the actual positions that people were taking or diminish the positions people were taking historically, right? Which is that they decided, again, in large numbers, that this party seemed to be more aligned with their interests, despite the fact that it was still filled with, you know, Southern sure. Democrats and segregationists. So there's a lot happening during the New Deal. It's both and, right? It is. There is pushback. There is attempt to try to segregate civilian conservation corps camps. Mm. We still have a segregated military at that time, right? right? And so there's problems. But it's in the midst of those problems that many black activists, you know, people like A. Philip Randolph, they don't say, oh, this country is so racist. I don't want to have anything to do with it. He rolls up his sleeves and he starts fighting for desegregation of the defense industries, right? Doing the right. midst of the same kinds of, of policy rollout. And so I think there's a different perspective we need to take on history. One is to try to understand how people experienced it. Like not what we're concerned about now and what we might have anxieties about now, but how did they experience it? What were they concerned about in those moments? And real impacts of it, right? Because, you know, I know people who use the GI Bill to gain an education you know, black people coming out of World War II, right? I know black people who coming out of Vietnam, they might have a problem navigating 
you know, uh, the Veterans Administration and all these other things, but they, they did ultimately prevail and they used funds from the GI Bill to either further education or to purchase a house. And so there are there there is there is evidence of this. And there's also evidence that black people, uh, I think there's an art, article by Suzanne Mettler that makes the case that black people in the South, you know, black veterans in the South use the GI Bill at a higher rate than their white counterparts. And so how do we explain that, right? The last mm-hmm. thing I'll say, I mean, it's hard for me to listen to these New Deal arguments when I know, like I said, there's people I've known who benefited from them directly. My grandmother, for instance, uh, whose name wasn't Rosie, but her name was, was Rosabelle, she actually was employed in the defense industry, right? She mm-hmm. got a job at Brooklyn Air Force Base as an electrical plater and worked at that job until that plant closed in the early 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's clear instances. Here's a black woman from Louisiana. She moves, she leaves her son behind, you know, with his grandmother so she can go and work in this plant. Uh, ultimately, she's able to get her husband a job in the plant as well. And they're able to make a life for themselves in Mobile, Alabama. And so I just, I, res- I have to resist like this kind of negative talk and really uninformed when I hear people making these claims sometimes, uninformed talk about what transpired during the New Deal. And whatever happened, again, we don't have to be bound by whatever limitations there were during that historical moment. We're in a different place and we need to understand our own challenges, our own unique moment. Okay, so let me let me see if I get this. So even if occupations like agriculture and domestic labor were not included by Social Security and a large proportion of those, the, the labor force in those in many places were, was African-American, that there were many Black folks who benefited from these policies in such a way that we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, that while in the administration, maybe, of some of these policies, there were there were racialized issues that, on the whole, these policies were beneficial, and therefore, by casting them as discriminatory, it erases the benefits that they did provide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's talk about that, right? So the Social Security Administration, you know, excludes agricultural workers and domestic labor from the initial rollout. And Toure Reed, you know, who's at Illinois State, uh, the historian Toure Reed, provides us the numbers, right? When we look at the numbers at that particular moment, the majority of agricultural workers uh, in the country were white. The majority of domestic laborers in the country were white. And so... Black people are affected, but it doesn't seem, you know, even if there were racist, you know, uh, Southern Democrats who helped to orchestrate the legislation, it wasn't just black people who were, you know, affected by it, right? And so there's there's a way in which that gets read as here's the, the smoking gun of New Deal racism, when in fact, this this is a reflection of the power of the Foreign Bureau. It's a reflection of the power of landed interests in the South. It's also a reflection of the general precarity of farm workers and domestics within our economy historically, right? They tend to be uh, undervalued and oftentimes Mm -hmm. off the books workers to begin with, right? 
The other thing, too, is that, you know, that was the case when the Social Security Administration is launched. But by the 1950s, it's my understanding that those exclusions were rectified, Mm. right? And so even though we can talk about it as, you know, in the beginning, you know, we still have to include that historical process that that people didn't say, oh, agricultural workers, domestics are are excluded. We're screwed. They said no. They should be included, and let's fight to make that happen, right? So I just think it's it's one of those things where we freeze frame the history, okay. you know, and not think about that particular moment was a reflection of the power asymmetry of landed interests in the Deep South, but also in other parts of the country, like California, who, who made sure that their position remained intact, right? That their superior position remained intact, but people continue to fight against that kind of uh, exclusion of certain segments of workers. Yeah, I think that what I keep coming back to is, you know, I study war and international relations and mm. I teach U.S. foreign policy and talk about the military a bit. And so one of the topics that comes up is rape as a tool of war and sexual assault in the military. Right. And... The raw numbers of sexual assault survivors from the military, the raw numbers are that there are more men assaulted every sexually assaulted every year than there are women because there are more men in the military than there are women. But there is a higher percentage of women who are sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. than men. So 10% of men versus whatever, 40% of women, there's more men. So the 10% of men is a higher number than the total number of women. So saying like, oh, well, we need to fix sexual assault against men because more men are affected Mm -hmm. doesn't address the fact that such a large proportion of women are facing this issue. Mm -hmm. And so... When you say that, you know, more farm workers and more domestic labor were white, it feels kind of like the same thing. Like, well, there are more were more white people. Well, there are still more white people, but there were more white people than there were African-Americans. But maybe and I don't know if this is true, a higher proportion of the African-American labor force were in these than the proportion of whites in the labor force. But because there are more whites, Mm -hmm. the raw number is greater. And so Mm -hmm. that doesn't take away from the fact that there was still a problem of leaving out a high proportion of the black labor force who happened to work in these fields. But just because the raw numbers Mm -hmm. were, there were more whites... You see what I'm saying? Like, I don't know how I feel about looking just at the raw numbers, given the numerical disparity between the groups. If it's true that there was a higher proportion of African-Americans in various fields that got left out. Mm. Yeah. What do you think about that? So two things. The the first part, um, I would say the reason for pointing out that it was majority white is to to force a different discussion of what was behind the exclusion. I see. Right? Okay. That's to Ray Reed's argument. I think that's mine as well. It's like, okay, if your argument is that this was done 
to disenfranchise or exclude black workers in these categories, then what does it mean to say that, well, the majority of people in those categories at that time were actually white? So it must have been some other concern that wasn't reducible strictly to a racial explanation, right? So the example you give about the military, which is interesting, my, my reason for pointing to raw numbers when it comes to police killings is not to say, aha, whites are also victims, right? Um, and therefore, we shouldn't say that there's, dis- there's discrimination or that there's disparities, right? It's, again, to force a different kind of conversation. So what is the problem? I think in the case that you're talking about of sexual assaults, it doesn't mean that there's no misogyny in the military, right? Mm-hmm. It means that there's a problem of sexual assault that has to do with masculinity on the one level, even when it's perpetrated against men. Right. And there's a problem of sexual assault in general in the military, right? That should be yeah. addressed across the board. And so I think the same thing with policing. It's like when I evoke the numbers nationally, or when I talk about specific things like indigenous people are the most likely to actually be yeah. killed by police, right? It's not to engage in like, oh, let's prioritize. So we should be an indigenous focus. No, we, nobody should be killed right. unlawfully and, and unjustifiably by police. And nobody should be made to languish in prison for committing some sort of survival crime, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's petty theft or, or even some kind of um, even force, forcible or violent crime, right? That there's a way for us to address these issues differently, right? That there's a bigger problem here, right? Surely, Racist discrimination, ghettoization are a part of the, the broader discussion. But what is it that ties these different cases together? You know, and for me, as somebody whose politics, you know, just to be blunt, are, are anti-capitalists, right? This is connected to the, the unreconcilable, you know, problems of capitalism that we have not in this country yeah. been able to address poverty, you know, in, in cities. And in rural areas yeah. and in abandoned, you know, rust belt places. Right. And so these are the places where these these crimes and these kinds of lifestyles are a place of last resort. And so why why aren't we addressing them en masse, right? Why aren't we addressing these concerns in a broader and systematic way? Why are we only thinking about them in the borrowed discourse of anti-racism from the Jim Crow period? I don't know if that clarifies yeah. the, the use of, of different different comparisons. No, I mean, I value very much the focus. I guess as mm-hmm. a white person trying to mm-hmm. be more inclusive in my classroom, in what mm-hmm. information I am having my students read, things like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if I fall into that group of people who it, it, it meets the purpose to be able to say, oh, look, here are these narratives. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. So you've, you've definitely given me a lot to think about. But I do absolutely agree with you that most problems are not reducible down to maybe the most on its face obvious answer. And that if we're not digging deeper mm-hmm. than that, that we are really missing a big slice of, of the problem. So I feel like my world has been shifted. Okay, well, it has been a really fascinating conversation. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time and the effort to be in the politics classroom with me today. Professor Cedric Johnson, thank you very much. 
Thanks so much for having me. Professor Cedric Johnson is a professor of Black Studies and Political Science at UIC. He is spending this academic year at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. His most recent book is The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, Debating Left Politics and Black Lives Matter. You've been listening to Professor Floros in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. The show airs on UICRadio.org or the Radio FX app on Tuesday evenings at 7 p.m. Central Time. Last week, I had a panel of UIC political science students on, and off-air, we talked about making the panel a semi-regular event on the podcast. I'd like to solicit from you, the listeners, questions about politics that you'd like to see me tackle with the students in future panels. You can reach me with questions or general comments about the show on Twitter and TikTok at Dr. Floros. I look forward to hearing from you. And just remember that new episodes of the podcast are available every Sunday morning during the academic year. But for this week, that's all I've got. Class dismissed.